Adam Norris, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? All right, thanks, Ertz. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. You've been out doing a bit of uh, photography recently with the swells that have come through? Um, it's probably been a couple of weeks the last time I went down the road and filmed the guys. Um, I caught up with uh, Ruben and um, Job and Joss, some of the guys, a little bit down the coast from where we are and filmed them there. I mean, it's a spot I film at a lot, to be honest. So I, there's no guarantees, but you know what it's like? I'm not a, a high-level surfer myself at all. I'm not, I don't even surf that regularly anymore. But as a photographer and filmer, you're trying to work out the surf forecast just like everyone else and try and sort of read between the lines. Especially with the switch to surf line, it feels like everyone's trying to learn a new language, you know, after um, the demise of Magic Sea, we're just working out the little differences between the two. Um, but yeah, so I have been filming a little bit to answer your question. Uh, um, and I'm heading off to Europe um, the beginning of December. I'm heading to like France, Spain, Portugal. So hoping to uh, to get lucky there, but we, we'll see. Nice. Sounds like you're, uh, you know, you're developing nicely because you've, you've only been on the kind of the surf uh, photography and um, and video scene really sort of like what the last two or three years really yeah I mean I am um, I very much like a late comer to surfing um, um, I mean I grew up in uh, in a place called Sutton Coldfield in Birmingham and we did have a family connection to surfing because um, my uh, my second cousin on my dad's side of the family was actually Steve Daniel who was a a British champion in the early 80s and um, competed in Europe and was pretty successful in Europe as well. And so I had no real connection to surfing um, as a child, never really went in the ocean. But the only thing I remember is we used to go to Plymouth every Christmas um, and visit the extended family. And we had this sort of awareness of Steve as being someone a bit special in that he did this thing surfing and that he was successful at it and um and to be honest for us as kids it was mainly things like we'd get really excited because he'd be giving us like these ocean pacific t-shirts and some of this surf gear and stuff and, and which we loved and occasionally we'd get copies of surf mags that he he'd been um you know that there'd be photos of him published in i'm guessing it would, probably would have been wavelength or maybe some uh some early calves as well um but yeah, so my connection to surfing really only, apart from that, and I mean, it's strange really looking back because we never, I was one of those children who watched Jaws at an early age, had a sort of irrational fear of the ocean. I would go in the ocean, I wasn't scared stiff of it, but I wasn't like someone who got in the sea and felt comfortable and felt this um, draw to the ocean. So I never really had much of a desire to explore it as a kid. Um, but then I, um, uh, you know, so as I was growing up though, um, and well, I ended up in a relationship with, uh, someone who's now just a dear friend of mine. And she bought me a subscription to this magazine called the New Yorker. And there was an article in this magazine at one point called playing docs games. It was written by this journalist called William Finnegan. And it was all about his experience as a lifelong surfer and 
having moved to San Francisco and what was happening was he was slowly getting drawn into doing sort of bigger and bigger wave surfing with this big wave surfer called Doc Renico, who's based in San Francisco as well. And that article just, just really like fired me up, fired my imagination. So like, it's an article that's actually in two parts. So I read both parts of it and then he ended up publishing a surf memoir, um, which is called Barbarian Days. And for anyone who hasn't read it, I'd, who's into the surf world, I would highly recommend it. I mean, it was, um, it sort of tells the story of his life from very, very early days surfing in Hawaii um, to uh, at sort of 20-ish, he goes on like a surfer, he goes all around the world, but you've got to bear in mind, this is at a time where there's no such thing as surf forecasting. Um, there's loads of loads, loads and loads of unexplored spots and, there's a sequence in the book where he um, and the fellow he's traveling with managed to find out, they hear rumors about this wave in this location that may be really, really exceptional. So they managed to get taken to this island by um, by some local guys over there. And it turns out, of course, it's, um, it's Tavarua and the wave they're talking about is restaurants and the other wave, obviously, cloud break. So he was probably one of the first guys to surf um, stuff uh, in uh, restaurants and cloud break and um, so he just talks about and there are other experiences he goes into he surfed Jay Bay a lot surfed Kira a lot you know traveled around the world so it just anyway it really kind of fired my imagination and I thought I want to go and try surfing so I just drove to um, drove to Woolacombe hired hired a mini mal got in the water don't really have any talent for it or not not super into fitness. I'm not particularly brave physically. So um, you know what it's like trying to learn surfing when you're in your 40s. You see what happens. and um, But I loved it. I loved, It's all the cliches you hear that people say about surfing, you know, the sense of well-being, the feeling of everything, just all the worries in the world lifted off your shoulders temporarily and all that kind of thing. So I kind of fell in love with surfing and for couple of years I tried pretty pretty intently to try and, and learn as best I could of course never occurs to me to get a surf lesson of any kind I just I go to places hire boards and just try and copy what people are doing and um and I, I did make some progress I got to the point where I can sort of take off on an unbroken wave trim down the line that's kind of about the extent of my my surfing ability um but I went on, during that time, I went on a surf trip to France and I was staying in a little place just north of Hossacourt called, uh, it's called Viabuco. And first day, I've got this big, huge, big board that weighs an absolute ton. I'm walking down to the beach and there are what looked like sort of probably three foot waves, nothing, nothing that heavy. But of course, people who've been to France know that it's a different proposition, you know, that that region of France in terms of the power. And I get properly worked in my first attempts and sort of, and I think, well, what am I going to do? I've come here to surf and these waves, I'm, I'm clearly not sort of equipped. So I I, I drove down to Hossegor and at, at the time I got lucky. It just so happened to be that the Quick Pro France was on and there are crowds on the beach. John John Florence and Mick Fanning are in the water. I have no idea who they are at the time because, you know, this is all new to me. But um, 
but I I remember that was the first time I had a camera with me and I tried to take some photos and it kind of sparked I really I really like this I really, I've, I've always kind of picked up cameras now and again through the course of my life my dad worked for a photographic company so there were cameras lying around at home and I had partners who were really into photography and I would borrow their camera and go and do some shots but it kind of that was the first experience and then being in Hossegor anyone who's been to Hossegor knows how dramatic and photogenic the conditions can get and I am um, so that was like the first step into me thinking I want to do more of this um what so, were you um what were you doing while you were doing this I mean what you what sort of um what occupation were you in at the time sorry yeah I'm um I retrained and I'm a nurse so I um I trained in the Midlands and um and then when my partner and I at the time we were both training when um when we finished we moved to the south coast we moved to like worthing sort of area um and my partner and I, we split up um but um and so that kind of was another element so i was kind of like i've got this free time when you're working as a nurse a lot of the time you're you're working three or four days a week so you've got relatively speaking quite a bit of free time i don't have children um so i'm pretty much a free agent in lots of respects. So I start, you know, I was lucky. I'm not in the position where I can disappear for two or three days to, to Devon or Cornwall at that point in time. And it's, it's no stress for anyone. So, um, so that was how it started. I, those first two years, I was just driving back and forth a lot of the time to Woolacombe and, but then starting to go down the coast a bit as well, Newquay area. Um, and uh, eventually I bit the bullet, decided I want to move and applied for jobs. I applied for a job here and applied for a job down in Cornwall, interviewed here and decided to come here. And um, so I worked on the respiratory ward sort of permanently for four years or so at North Devon District Hospital. And then I'm now what's called a bank nurse where I, um, the NHS trusts have like a bank of staff who can book shifts um, they list the shifts that need covering and we book the shifts. So it's not an agency nurse. You're working for the, the, the NHS, but it gives you a lot of flexibility and um, so and a lot of control over when you're going to work. So if a really good swell's popping up, you know, early next week, I can switch my shifts around easily and, and go and film or do photography. So I'm sort of lucky in that respect. Sounds like it all kind um, of just... Um it's kind of fallen into place for you really trying to follow one passion but you know have a job that can can pay the bills and um, yeah. you know you have a career path as well yeah I mean it's as I've been going along um, I think like a lot of people are aware that some years ago there was quite a lot of money in the surf industry and then kind of the bottom fell out of it and now there's there's not a huge amount of money available I think there are, if you're, if you, uh, I consider myself really to be in the early stages of um, uh, my photography and filming, sort of, I'm still very much learning. Um, so, but, but having said that, along the way, I've started earning little bits of money here and there from various um, companies and, you know, and that all helps because camera gear can cost a fortune. Um, so, it's just at the moment it's kind of just sort of paying some of the bills for covering some of my costs but 
potentially i'm going to see where it see where it goes and and um because the other thing is having a having a passion and a hobby sometimes if if you decide to commit full time to it and do it professionally then you introduce a lot of stress expectations and you know and you can lose that kind of pure sort of joy of it can't you i'm sure you know that yourself you know um yeah so it's i don't know if i would want to do it full-time professionally because then that does limit you in terms of the freedom you can go in any direction if you're doing it for yourself whereas if you're doing it professionally you can start to feel these elements but i've been grateful to work with it you know any of the brands who have managed to do little bits and pieces for i'm certainly very grateful it's been a good experience so i'm not complaining but but there are benefits also to doing it just as a passion and a hobby i think what when did you start kind of going right this is this is something that i, I want to explore a little bit more because like you say camel gear is is kind of like um an ever-evolving thing isn't it i i would compare it to kind of like the 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 wind industry where you've got windsurfing and kite surfing each year a new model comes out and each model and or, or like you know gaming playstations and stuff like that when the new yeah. one comes out it costs more but it's only got a you know a, a couple of little new gadgets or some better pixels on it um yeah. so what when did when did you kind of feel like right this is something that i'm going to pursue and what were kind of like the the starter camera uh cameras and gear that you bought well i when i um when i, I moved here in 2019 and i bought myself that was when i bought a, a dslr and i bought a big telephoto lens and at the time I bought, it was a Nikon D7200, which is, uh, it's a digital SLR camera, so you can change lenses on it. It has a mirror that, um, and for a while I shot with, what I did was I shot with that probably for a year or so. And then as I was, I mean, I was out shooting maybe three times a week, for quite long it was the it was the a huge part of my life so after a while i justified to myself right let's get a, a slightly better camera so i bought an old full frame uh nikon digital slr and um and progressed along with that for a while and the trouble with camera gear it's a bit like it's very much like surfers with boards that you 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 have a little bit of success with a camera and you see the potential or whatever but then you think well if i had this piece of equipment it's going to allow me to achieve this and therefore i'm going to get this piece of equipment and it's going to and there's a certain amount of truth in that but of course there's much more truth in the fact that you know you need to learn how to use the piece of equipment that you've actually got um to its full extent for but but i would never lecture people on it it's just that like there's a there's a name for it. It's probably in other fields as well. But in photography, they talk about gear acquisition syndrome or gas, where you buy a camera and then you're on YouTube and you're watching these reviews and then you need another camera and then you need another camera. Before you know it, you're spending money you don't have on on all this equipment. The one thing I would say that argued in my favor during that time was that I was shooting all the time. So it was not like I was buying this stuff and it's just sitting on a shelf and I'm not using it. So, but a turning point for me came when I went after that first experience at Hossegor, I, I started going back there um, 
I went, I think I went three years in a row. The second time I went, I was staying in this little um, hostel that some people probably know about, Joe and Joe. Osagor is a nice little hostel there. And there was this crew of like, it was five young Western Australian surfers. And they what they'd done is they bought themselves like a, a 1990 Ford Fiesta and the five of them with like God knows how many boards were squeezed in this Fiesta and they were driving around and I and I was sitting in this hostel one evening I was editing some photos and one of them said to me um I'm gonna surf La Graviere tomorrow on a longboard do you want to come and photograph it and I was like yeah definitely definitely and he said to me do you do video and at that point I said no I don't because for people who are into photography or interested in photography or listening to this, DSLRs, there's there um, there's a new generation of digital cameras called mirrorless cameras, which tend to be much, much better for, for video. And the reason why that is, is because a lot of people when they're first doing video are, are shooting autofocus and mirrorless cameras just have much, much better autofocus. So it was the first time I thought, I'm missing a bit of an opportunity here because I'm just now the reality is if I had had more skill, I probably could have found a way to film him, but it would have been so much easier if I had a mirrorless camera, but I went and took some photos of him. It, it was an experience. It turned out that he was, um, he was a competitive, he was on the world longboard tour. His name is Anthony Spencer. And um, cause I was just thinking, how on earth is he going to surf that wave? on a longboard, how's he got, you know, it's like a nine, six or whatever it was, big firewire timber tech thing. And I'm thinking, and he put on a show, but um, that was the first time it really clicked for me. I want to be able to do video as well um, if I can. And so I, I think maybe the second trip, when I came back from Hossagor, I, um, I came back to the UK and it's no slight on the waves near where I live, but um, sometimes they can be a bit difficult to film, a bit difficult to get the best out of. And I was looking, I suppose, for some more dramatic conditions. So I started traveling around the UK looking for sort of uh, more dramatic, like aesthetically more dramatic looking waves. Which... Is that to do with like the, the angle of you taking, you're taking the shot from or you, it's difficult to get down to? It's it's it is like I don't don't get me wrong like um, without naming the spot although I suppose it doesn't matter we're both locals here but um, um, the local shortboarding break here I do enjoy filming at and I think there are where I've been filming a bit with Will Bailey recently there and there are ways to get really really nice um, footage really nice angles it's just a question of beach breaks can be harder to film than points or reef breaks for the obvious reason that they're shifting around so much and very often they're busy and in the bigger conditions you, you you've got this constant battle of trying to track the surfer you're there to film and so there's just some uh, now don't get me wrong you need to be able to film at beach breaks and i do but it's it is a more of a challenge than, than filming at a point break or filming at a, a reef break for that obvious reason but i started sort of I think it's also like a natural a natural thing that when you get into surfing, whether you're surfing yourself or whether you're um, whether you're sort of following the sport, you do want to explore a bit. So I started like I went up to the north coast of Scotland, went down to the south coast um, of of England, and then I started driving 
I started looking for these different types of waves. I suppose a big part of it was that I was looking for um, probably for reef breaks, if I'm honest. Um, were you getting but, uh, Were you getting guided by surface? Or did Did you know, like you know, you mentioned Will, um, Will being one of the uh, one of you know really good surfers from from North Devon. Um, did Did they kind of drop a few names into you and give you some pin drops of uh, of where to go, or were you just literally looking at uh, like Google Maps and going, "Yeah, there might be people here." I think. Well, well, it's funny. The first time I took photos of uh Reuben Ash and Joss Ash, his brother. I I literally it was I'd come back from that trip and I just drove down the coast and I was just looking for and that that was the that was genuinely just I'm just going to explore and see what I find. And I, I happened to drive down this lane and I happen upon this spot and I see these two surfers out. And I think it's funny because um I think at that time, although I was watching a fair bit of surfing, I don't think I could really distinguish between like competent surfing and like elite surfing. I think I see it sometimes when I talk to like, uh, if I'm showing a friend of mine who's got zero interest in surfing, if I show them uh, a clip of surfing, I don't feel like they distinguish between what is someone just kind of trimming down a line capably or what is someone doing, you know, really thrown out the tail or whatever so the first time I saw them I don't know if I recognized how special those two guys were but I took some shots that day and I just made a mental note I'm going to remember how to get to this place and I'm going to come back um, so I had some experiences like that and I think and then I think it was also a combination of just um, just googling and looking at Storm Rider Guide and things like that and and to be honest, this is where, like, don't get me wrong, I, I absolutely respect the need to to, um, to be discreet and to not be sort of publicising the names and locations of places left, right and centre. But, but the counter argument to that is that if you really, if you've got a strong interest, you're going to find, the, you, you can often find these waves, can't you? Um, so, um, and to be, having said that, I'm not really filming it. I'm filming at what you call semi-secret spots. They're not really secret spots. People know them. But at the same time, I'm not going to be um, putting the names of the places around because uh, obviously I understand the the feelings of the local the local surfers there. You don't want to get fucking stoned. That's what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone told me the other day that there was a bit of an issue at one of the spots I film at. But I, I don't know if that's true or not. He just said he'd read something about some aggravation there but i mean when i first started going after i spotted like reuben and joss and i started going back there regularly i did actually i literally went up to a few there'd be groups of locals preparing to go in and i'd go and have a introduce myself saying listen i've been coming here filming i just want to make sure you guys feel comfortable with it i'm not stepping on any toes and, and to be honest they were kind of like people have been bloody filming reuben here for years it doesn't matter and they were all like relaxed about it um and for the most part, people are. I mean, I have had someone come up to me at another break, um, uh, and um, in the opposite direction, and sort of give me a bit of a lecture and sort of say, "You destroy, we destroy what we love," and all this this kind of stuff. And and listen, I understand that. I do. I do respect the fact that you need to um, uh, 
be discreet and you shouldn't be just encouraging everyone to just mob a place. Um, but I also think that the bottom line is, you know, it's it's public land. You've, you've got to be, it's, it's about your attitude for me. If you're respectful and you approach some place respectfully and you check in with, and also if you've got some self-awareness about, is this a place I actually should be surfing? Am I gonna likely? Am I likely to just get in the way here, you know, or am I am I actually able to surf this wave? Um, and but you know, surfing fundamentally is there's a bit of like the uh, the freedom impulse in it, isn't there? Where sort of don't tell me what to do. I'm you know, so I, I understand it's a complicated situation, isn't it? I think society uh, has moved a little bit, especially with the focus on surfing and the explosion of you know, in the last sort of like five years of, of people being in the water. And it's a difficult, uh, difficult one. Um, you know, I, and I'm, I'm super guilty of it. Like, I love watching your edits and other edits that are out there. And I love, I love what you love what you do. But most of the time, I'm like that, right? What does that rocky outcrop? Where's that? Like, you know, where's that? I'm trying to think, I was here that day. I, I I didn't think that was going to be pumping like that, and then like I started getting really angry with myself because I ever been somewhere that you've been filming, and uh, yeah. <laughs> it, and, uh but yeah. that's the other thing I was going to kind of ask you is that are you when you taking your shots are you are you are you consciously making sure that you don't put like certain landmarks in it, or, or is it just the fact that the focus of the shot has to be a certain wave? Otherwise, you're not going to get the image and the video that you want of those certain people. And have you got that kind of back thought um, subconsciously that, you know, you don't want every man and his dog to know where it is as well? Yeah, you definitely. Um, um, I, I definitely. Um, I mean, there are some places that are so, so I like that I feel like almost so well known in the surf community that like there's a place on the South coast where I did an edit a, while, a couple of years ago. And um, there are little, there are sort of little parts of the landscape there that are so kind of iconic to that place that it it's hard to, it's hard to disguise, but, but don't, but yes, definitely when I first was filming and still to an extent now, I will try to um I will try to avoid revealing something that's really obvious. Like I don't want to do these like driving down shots to to where I'm going sometimes because I think, well, there's a chance that that might help someone find their way there. And um but having said that, I've also gone the other side and there have been times when I've put shots in edits where which probably do help people clearly identify um the spot. But I um for the most part, I've found that it's certainly um, the place where I've shot the most. I seem to, if anything, I've seemed to feel as though I've slowly, because I've been shooting there for, what, two and a half years regularly. So every time when there's a good swell, not everyone, but I try and be there for a lot of the good swells. So I've started to, uh, to um, get to know uh, more of the locals and become friends with some of the locals. And uh, so I, I feel as though... Um, uh, they would definitely let me know if I was um, uh, upsetting them in some in some way or um, and but to be honest, um, I think you do have to be you do have to be careful. Um, and sometimes it's frustrating because you think 
there'll be a shot and you think i really want to it's like a perfect scene setting shot or it's a perfect like lineup sort of style shot and you think i'd love to use that but i'm not going to because potentially it might upset someone um but having said that i also some of it is also just like a personal choice like um there's a surf filmmaker called wade carroll who um he's uh, um he did the recent quicksilver film repeater but i i am um, i one of my favorite surf edits um is called rock and it's a film he did with uh, mikey wright in hawaii and what really got me in that edit was the um these really tight shots of surface so you know the frame might be empty initially just with the lip of a wave breaking and then mikey enters the frame and you're getting all of this this feeling of being right in there amongst it without actually being in the water with the water housing you're still getting some of that um that sense of you can really see the minutiae of what he's doing and how he's holding the rail or whatever he's doing you know so i do quite like shooting surfers close up um so sometimes it's considerations like that you're just thinking i want to try and get the viewer feeling like they're they're really there with the surfer um but I mean, um, yeah, the the local sensibilities thing. I I do think it's important, but I have kind of uh, uh, not mixed feelings about it because I absolutely respect the locals. But then I'm also aware you get toxic elements of any community, don't you? You get some any community. You can have people who are using something to sort of justify um, behaving badly. So I just try and be respectful, take that approach, and just be respectful and listen to what people are saying. And if it seems very reasonable, then I'm not going to argue with it and just respect what they say, you know. Well, since you, you've been filming like, you know, Ruben Ash and some of the, um, some of the, you know, the the pros sort of like Cornwall, North Devon, UK surfers. Do you ever get any kind of little phone calls from them saying, look, we're going to be here. Um, you know, do you fancy coming down taking some shots? Cause I, cause I know from your, from your, the website side of things, um, that, that I've seen from you that, you know, you do, um, you do kind of bespoke photo shooting for, for a, for a price. Um, but, you know, on the flip side of that, it, it's good to kind of, do, do you get those phone calls from them to say, look, do, you know, do you want to come down and do some shooting? Well, to be honest, at first, it kind of worried me because the first session I had shooting that wave, I went down, it was shooting video I'm talking about, I went down and I got really lucky because there was like Ruben and Joss were in, uh, Miles Lee Hargreaves was in, uh, Liam Turner was there before he'd gone away. Um, I think possibly Joe Harris was in, Barnaby Cox was in for a short period of time. So, uh, and at that point, I didn't know any of them. I, I'd never spoken to any of them and I'm filming them and I create this little film with, um, and I put it up on YouTube and, and there were, and I, and I, and I did that a couple of times without having ever really spoken to any of them. And but I did message them and say, "Listen, do you feel comfortable with this? Is this all right?" Because um, um, I wanted to kind of, because in some senses, um, I felt that time these guys are they've got this. They're delivering raw talent and surfing at a level that is hard to find in the UK. So I thought, you know, they're clearly bringing this big thing to the table and, and I'm just there pointing a 
the camera at them and then decided to do whatever I want with it. And so I, I was kind of conscious that I wanted to try and check in with them. And initially, I don't think they got back to me. And and then I would talk to, I, I would meet a couple of people who knew them and and they were kind of, oh, I, don't, I wouldn't worry about it. They're really relaxed, chill out, don't worry about it. And then over time, I, I started to get to know Ruben a little bit, a few brief words here and then. And um, and um, and we would chat more, and Joss and and Miles, and and so over time, I wouldn't say we're not sort of close friends or anything like that, but it's a friendly relationship. We're in, and occasionally now they will. I always kind of drop them lines in. If you're heading out and you want someone to shoot, just let me know. And I do sometimes get that heads up these days. Um, quite often, I might have already spotted the um the um the swell on the horizon so i'll already be kind of thinking that i know where they're going to be and I'll, I'll certainly turn up their days thinking i think it's pretty likely they're going to be here and what do you know there they are so um but i've developed relationships with them a bit over time and you know very um really nice guys they helped me out the last the last time i was filming there i i went I went down and I took Malachi Hagley. I, I imagine you know Malachi, right? Um and um I was filming and I was I was trying to do like three or three things at once. I was trying to take stills, I was trying to film, um, and I was trying to avoid this tide that was coming in. And I um through some sequence of events, I must have ended up putting my car keys on the floor and then I had forgetting about them. And you know what happened next, the high tide claimed the keys um so i i was mostly worried about malachi because i'd given malachi a lift and we get back to my car haven't got the keys he's there in his wetsuit and what we're going to do uh i'm ringing trying to get through and there's barely any network and and ruben it will joss and ruben just said just come up two hours just and they were very helpful to us just looked after us looked after malachi i was lucky i got a locksmith to sort it out there and then and uh we we went on our way but yeah so um we've got i've got to know him a little bit lovely guys um what stands out to me i think is just this pure and i've I've noticed it with with like barnaby cox or with will like barnaby i shot barnaby all through the winter a couple of years ago and in the end um the idea was that i was going to do like a surf edit about him um but to be frank at that stage and even at this stage still you can talk about people being like either filmmakers or videographers and i'm kind of at the point where i'm like a videographer trying to learn about filmmaking if you see what i mean trying to actually and there are there are other there are guys who i would call probably filmmakers now a few of them in cornwall you know like rob blackett or seth hughes um these guys are they're filmmakers already so so long story short i didn't do that edit of barnaby he he got another editor in to do it rob blackett did that one actually and and it was a great film they used some of my clips and stuff but um um i forgot what i was going to say now what were we talking about but um barnaby um what was i Barnaby, and I then you were going on about making the uh, making the surf edits and the surf films, and yeah. being a surf editor or surf uh, filmographer. Yeah, and we were talking about getting to know them, weren't we? Um, but yeah, so like I am, um, you know, I've certainly got to know um, 
some of these guys. I mean, sometimes it can be difficult because I'm not, I'm not out. I, although I've got a water housing and I used to get in the water and shoot stills quite a bit. Um, in recent times, I've kind of lost my nerve a little bit in the water. I had a couple of experiences where I got properly freaked out and, so I'm in the process of trying to almost like rehabilitate myself, get in the water, re-expose myself to various conditions, train my brain to calm down. You know what I mean? So, um, but there is a separation for someone like me. You know, I'm knocking on, I'm getting close to 50. And you've got like Barnaby who's like 22 or whatever. And so there's different it sometimes it's hard to actually form that kind of relationship where someone feels relaxed with you uh, if you're walking around with the camera so that's one of the challenges i've i've had in terms of like trying to make these edits like i don't want to be acting like i'm their best friend and that i've known them forever when i haven't and i don't want to act like i know all of the intricacies of what it's like to to be surfing those waves um but at the same time it does hold me back a bit sometimes not being able to kind of, I think if I was a 27 year old guy out there trying to surf the same waves with them, it might help break down that barrier a little bit, but, but, you know, I'm happy with what I'm doing. And and I, one of the things I've realized is you can't, um, I think it's very important to be inspired by people and it's very important to try and be objective about where you are in terms of your skill level. But at the same time, also important to remember that people who achieve incredible things in any field they started as uh, with no skills and they and what happened is they just had a curiosity and dedication and time and then they learned those skills over time i think one of the things that you're talking like about in the there is, that you... is, is um you know you think of some of like the real big you know filmmakers like your bruce browns your taylor steels your jack johnson's yeah uh, you know the the guys that uh, the guys That'd be weird, wouldn't it? They're not gays, guys. Um, that would yeah. uh, that that have kind of made landmark films like back in the early '80s and the late '90s, and you know, yeah. Telly Steele's been doing it since Kelly Slate was like, you know, super young. So, yeah, those guys have done exactly the same as you, really, but with the equipment was was never as high tech as it as what it is now. So there's that element of like you're saying you've only been doing it you know two or three years and to the to get to the level now I think your edits are a little bit different to the ones that get put out I think it from a personal uh, opinion and that's why I wanted to talk to you is because you're you you make it uh you, like your framework and whatever sort of like lighting you put into it whether it's the filters or whatever just makes it look a little bit more unique and it's really difficult sometimes to try and make British waves look appetizing and appealing. So when you're shooting yeah. them and it's like fucking five degrees outside, it's freezing, you're wearing six mils of neoprene, but yeah. you make it like look appealing that people want to go and go and do it. And um, yeah. I think there are very few, few edits out there uh, and people that are doing things like what you are that kind of make it feel um a little bit of like wholesome rawness if that makes sense yeah yeah i think i mean um it's interesting when you said 
uh, gave, invited me to come and talk on the podcast, I was thinking about like one of the things that I suppose I'd probably like to talk about is the 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 short films that I've seen that have kind of really sort of inspired me that I look at and think like where I'd like to to get to. Um, but um, and for me, it's probably like Kai Neville, the best surf film in some respects that, or my favorite is probably, it's a film called The Quieter You Are, The More You Can Hear. And it's quite an iconic film with Craig Anderson and film is 20 minutes long, filmed in multiple locations. It's got uh, just this incredible free surfing mixed in with Kai Neville's sort of artistic sort of abstract um stuff in between and it's kind of difficult even for someone who's highly motivated to watch surf content someone like me who loves it it's very difficult actually to make surf content really engaging but um and i'm and i'm becoming more i'm, I'm realizing actually as you go along when you're doing this you think you look at the youtube because i've got a youtube channel that's kind of where i publish them and you look at these analytics and it says oh people switch off after one minute 15 seconds or one minute 30 seconds and you realize what you are for most people is you, there's just a glimpse and it's so tempting to start trying to edit to avoid that happening and you're thinking well i'll front load the edit with all this really dramatic interesting stuff see if i can hold on to people and then already you're starting to lose um you're you're then really allowing um whatever this tendency is to kind of influence the decisions you're making when you're making the edit but the priority for me when i'm filming probably is if i'm honest it's i want to try and find like the best surfers i can find uh ideally in really good solid conditions like for me there's nothing better than watching like my fav favorite conditions are probably like eight to twelve feet huge walls and watching someone doing these huge rail turns probably even more so than barrels i know uh barrels are this sort of absolute mecca for many surfers. But for me, if there was one thing that I'd love to be able to do on a wave, it would just be able to do a huge big rail turn on um, on sort of a 10 foot wave, um, you know? And so um, so I'm generally focused on like, let's find surfers who can, who can do that. And, um, and let's ideally try and find them in the best conditions possible. And then kind of build around it and um and i mean a lot of it starts with music like there's an edit of um there's this australian surfer who's just qualified for the ct next year called um jacob wilcox and i remember i was re-watching heats from like the uh, margaret river events when john john went absolutely crazy like 2016 and 17 i think it was and jacob wilcox was in an early heat against him and it's like 12 foot gigantic and there's this young kid who just looks really comfortable in in um heavy conditions and um so i've kind of followed jacob wilcox since then and he released this film called by default and it's like 15 minutes long and about eight minutes into it there's the start of this one session and i i feel like it's almost like the best um display of just really high performance surfing but then it morphs into like this person who's really, really comfortable in these gigantic Western Australian waves. So I suppose that's what I'm I'm trying to aim for. It's not doesn't have to be gigantic waves, but just those moments when when 
everyone in the water feels like something special is happening. You know, like I'm sure you've had that experience where you're in the water and you thought the forecast was, looked pretty good. And then all of a sudden you get this unexpected surprise of, wow, the waves are just really special today. You know, and you get people whooping and hollering and just feeling like, yeah, this is, you know, I mean, I remember one of the last, the last trip, last time I went to Scotland, I went to probably the most famous wave up there. And I had to come back to Birmingham that evening because I had to um, go to a, an appointment with my mum. It was something I just could not get out of. I had to, to take her to this thing. And, um, but the forecast was saying it's going to be like eight to 12 feet by like 11 o'clock. And I get there in the morning. And at that time, it's like four foot and then steadily six foot, eight foot. And then eventually like these gigantic, gigantic waves are coming through at this break. And people are pulling up in a van, jumping out, desperately racing to get wetsuits on, racing to get out there's whoops, hollers and things like that. You know, it's experiences like that, really, that, um, that, that are, are probably the things that are most motivating for me, finding these these special moments where the conditions are just really, really nice. And then ideally finding some surfers who can make the most of them. You can you never know? predict any of that sort of thing though. It's kind of, no, it's like no. mystic, mystic Meg's, you know, um, little orb of, orb of destiny, you know, yeah. I, I, and I think the, the forecasting websites kind of don't help. Like I've recently since uh, magic sea, we transferred over to Surfline. I've been to, a few places where I said it was going to be okay, and look when I when I when I check forecasts now, I've got five different weather forecasting apps, and I just take a generic medium out of it um, yeah. to kind of see where it is. Yeah. And generally, it's going to be swell period. It's going to be you know the swell direction uh, and potentially like the, the the height and the period as well, and you know. Just yeah. Just take a, a an estimation from that. Really, it's kind of like going all the way back to when you used to get the newspapers with the um, with the isobars in the back of the paper where it told you the weather. You're just kind of like guessing, and then you go, right, okay, well, which way the wind's going to go? Which spot's going to be the best place? Yeah. And nine times out of ten, you know, you, you'll go there, and that one percent of the time will be absolutely pumping. You go, yes, I've scored. But then, you know, sometimes I've been in the water, and you go, meh. It's a bit funky or yeah. you know you, you come back and someone's actually yeah. scored they've scored that one percent and they've been to they've been to another spot that you were going to go to but you decided not to and you're like shit i wish i'd gone there now you know I, and i'm just going back to kind yeah. of what you were saying about five minutes ago so there was, there was a um there was a movie that was there was there's two iconic films for me when i when i was younger one was called uh what now um, again, I think it was one of the really t early Taylor Steeler films. We've, we had like Machado. We had all those guys in, you know, Slater, uh, yeah. Kalani Rob, and all, all them guys. And uh, and the soundtrack that kind of went with it was 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 what made it. So I was really into sort of like indie grunge, like you know, fast skate skater rock. You could guess you could call it these days. But then, yeah. This was sort of sort of like the mid nineties. I think it came out in like ninety five. Uh, VHS, I had of it. Yeah, so that's how old it is. Um, and then, uh, and then in 
the early aughties, there was a film called The Elusive, and I've got the guy's name here. I think the director of it was called Angus Dunlop. And it was a 55-minute film, um, and it was just kind of really raw footage um, of yeah. surfers from, from all around the country. And again, the, the thing that kind of made it is, I mean, you know, we haven't even talked about putting soundtrack into in, into into um, into yeah. a film yet, but it very much sets the premise of the film. You know, yeah. I, I, and and one of the other like more recent ones, I say more recent, sort of like two thousand eight, two thousand and nine films, was the Bruce movie, and it just had like these iconic songs in it that that made it. Now take all of that out. It's like a horror movie, right? You take all of the the incy wincy screaming and stuff, and it's just some people running around going, bah! and and it's not particularly scary. It, it's the setting of it all, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and that's one of the other things, kind of, with with, with the films that you put out. And it must take like because I've done some editing before. You know, and uh, especially like with the podcast and I've got a few other bits and pieces, like three different businesses that I have social media platforms for it. And you have to choose like the music that goes out with like the posts or the videos that you've made. And, you know, I, I would call I'm a very amateur um, videographer, like it's like most amoeba form. Um, but just to try and find music to go in equally takes as long as creating the content for it just because you're trying to find the same ambience and there's so much out there now that you can kind of put into it. It can be really difficult to do. Yeah. Yeah. Music, I, music kind of, to be honest, music is always the starting point for, um, for the edits. And sometimes I can't even, you know, I might've gone and filmed and got like a load of really exciting uh, clips. And I think I really want to try and put something together, but if, I just can't find, a piece of music and like the last the last edit i did i was consciously like because i've been picking this sort of um moody or some people might refer to it as sort of darker sort of music at times and i was thinking i want to try and i want to put something in that's kind of more raucous and like a celebration and and, and i heard that i don't know if you ever listened to the band black grape but they um they did, there's this song called kelly's heroes and it's kind of like really sort of anthemic party, here we go, like raucous energy. And I had it in my mind, I definitely want to edit the next edit, I want to use that. And then you put the music in and you're editing it and it just doesn't doesn't feel right. Just doesn't work. Now I love that piece of music, but it just did not work. And I'll maybe try again. And, and so the music is kind of like the, in some ways the music is the most crucial part of it. Not, that's not fair. No, it's not the most crucial part of it. But without it, I just can't get anywhere with it. And and um, so you're absolutely right. And if I think about like that Jacob Wilcox edit that I mentioned, so like Jacob Wilcox has been uh, on the QS and then the Challenger series for years, and he's someone who's been kind of like flagged as this guy. I absolutely charges. He really deserves to be on the CT. And the sequence of that edit I mentioned, the song on it is. Uh, new york excuse and like the refrain in the chorus is just this woman singing is it good enough is it good enough and he's there getting kind of like he's in these like 12 foot pits in western australia and 
it's just this refrain is it good enough is it good enough you know and so like it, sometimes it just just leap out you and and i mean certainly john john's film a view from a blue moon that the um the pipeline section in that the first piece of music and the way the sound design is done like as he's just cycling along the path sort of and then slowly walking out like i, I don't know if you're going to get like a, a better depiction of pipeline so that the and you're right it's the music the music and in a way it's dishonest because it's kind of like that isn't really what was happening there that's not the natural sounds of the environment but it's just all of that inspiration sort of um energy that it delivers which is i'll tell you there was um there was uh i think last year there was um a reel that came out john john put out no, it must have been two years ago, maybe longer than that. And uh, I'm really into kind of like Led Zeppelin, um, Deep yeah. Purple, like yeah. old school, but sounds amazing still now. Like, you know, yeah, you, absolutely. loads of lead guitar, loads of riffs, some really yeah. good drumming. The singing is like amazing. And there's a band called Greta Van Fleet. Uh, have a yeah. look. You heard them, and uh, I've heard them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they they're delivering the Led Zeppelin vibes, aren't they? One hundred percent. Immense. There's loads of YouTube videos out about like how the lead singer is like he uh, equated to Robert Plant, and people kind of think. Anyway, I'm digressing here massively. Anyway, yeah. John John puts out this this reel, and I never I never heard of better Grant, uh, Greta Van Fleet before, yeah. and it's just him taking off on a, a wave at back door. And I watched this thing like 20 or 30 times. Now the wave is amazing yeah. anyway, but you know, sometimes yeah. when you watch pipe, it can be quite repetitive because it's like this critical way yeah. people take it. Like you're almost like desensitized to how like dangerous the, the shit that they're doing is. Yeah. But the sun comes on and, and John takes off on, on this wave. It's like a, a an air drop into like the bottom third and he tucks in and then he pulls out and it's got the safari song playing from Greta Van Fleet. And I'm like, that, yeah. this is immense. And I watch it 20 or 30 times. And then if you go back and you just take out the music of it, I'd have probably watched it maybe like once and just scrolled past it, like you're saying. And that's kind of like the error, yeah. really, right? You need to find something that's captivating that people can kind of uh, get their grips into. And, uh, and, uh, and it's almost like these days, I remember like surf movies like used to be an hour and a half long. You used to have all these clips that are put together and they're, they're banged yeah. in. Now you've got like, I think the longest ones really are like 30 minutes. There's no real like hour long surf movies anymore because people's attention spans yeah. are, are, are so kind of, uh, have been taken away by social media. Everybody wants this short, sharp burst or something. Like they won the endorphin rush going, yeah, that was amazing. But then they don't want to go, fucking hell, is this over yet? You know, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like taking my son out. Like, you know, he goes and plays on the park for about five minutes. You're like, can we go home? And like, but we're just like, yeah. you know. It's got here, yeah. We just put yeah. all this effort in to do this, right? Um, which, I don't know, is a good thing or a bad thing. You, you, you then having to, I guess, as a videographer, you're having to consciously find the best bits that you've got and whack them all in and find the best music and what's, what's the most captivating for people. But then also the harder thing for it then is also not doing the same thing over and over again and finding different angles because then it becomes repetitive and people are like, yeah, we've seen this. Yeah. I th 
think I think overall it probably is a bad thing in the sense that like um like it's really nice to have something that's got a bit of room to breathe but then I mean don't get me wrong in some ways it's good because it forces you the fact that it's so difficult to get any kind of real engagement um a lot of the time um with content the fact and don't get me wrong you get I've got some engagement but you um you know, cracking the code of social media. There's people who are dedicated to it full time, and I don't really want to spend my time doing that. But at the same time, it is, I know, and I do think, but I do think it's a shame that you can't um, get someone to sort of say, right, I, I'm going to give here's ten minutes, and there are going to be parts of it that aren't in that first. You know, your first instinct might be to turn off, but let's just see where this goes. You know, because. I do like that that experience where you just don't quite know where something's going to go as a viewer, but at the same time, you know that's that's just reality. You just I suppose you just have to face up to the fact that um, people are consuming content in this way. And um, but I suppose you can sort of decide to pick and think. Well, I'm going to make this a challenge that I'm going to try and so I'm going to try and let's see if I can produce a real that say 20 seconds where someone's not going to switch off they're going to actually they're going to stay hooked into it and and i've seen people do that and sometimes it's about the conditions as you say sometimes it's about maybe an aspect of the photography just that the photography is so beautiful the light's perfect the focus is absolutely pinch everything's just right so i mean you can interpret it in a way that will sort of drive you forward and think well i want to improve try and improve what i'm trying to do and see if i can just use it as like a motivating thing but it can be um i think it is a shame we have and even me like um some of kai neville's films like i watched another of um kai neville's films with craig anderson and even me i'm there feeling that impatience saying move to the next thing deliver this do that but you i think um i don't i, I want to try and sort of uh avoid falling into that trap a bit too much but but having said that i don't try so far i've only tried to make edits up to five minutes long you know um but i you know but i i think if um i i would like to try and make a longer um project at some point but i think um what you said about music is so true that that and this is where the kind of unknown aspect of it comes along. You kind of need something that, like a spark, that that starts something and then it starts rolling. Um, so, um, so yeah, we'll see. You know, and I mean the other thing that I'd like to do a bit more of is like I was filming, um, I was filming at another wave that I'm sure you've been to, and there is a um, a, a local guy surfing there, James Bunny. I don't know if you know James. Um, He's a regular surfer in, in this area. And James is a very, very capable surfer. I wouldn't say he's, he's not like a competing in the UK. He's not like a, a semi-professional surfer, but he's very capable. But I was filming him at this break and I got a couple of clips of him. Um, and what was so inspiring about the way he was surfing was that he was really trying to... Push. He was try What he was trying to do essentially was a down carve without like um, a grab grabbing the rail. He was trying to do like this Mikey Wright thing where you know you 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 put your weight back, really push that inside rail in and, and pull down. And and he got it and he said and I, I filmed him and 
and I said it just looked beautiful. And he said, I've been trying to do that over and over again and struggling. But I, I do find surfers who are really consciously trying to to develop their surfing kind of um inspiring as well. So I would like to try and get into maybe filming surfers who are trying to do that a bit as well. Cause I think filming your surfing is probably don't get me wrong, I think most people I've had friends who, I mean, this is the danger actually, that when you're filming surfing a lot of the time and you don't surf yourself, you start to feel as though you could give people real insights to their surfing because you start because you're there with the camera. Um and so uh, I almost I don't know if you listen to the Stab podcast, but Stab have this this thing where they do like the surf sins. And I, I was nearly gonna ring in and sort of say, like, my sin is that I I feel like I'm starting to judge people surfing and feel as though I could give them advice when I can barely stand up myself on a surfboard. Just well, some of the best coaches in the world can't do the things that they tell other people to do. You mean, you look at some of the swimming coaches, you see yeah. swimming pools, they look like bowling balls and they're telling these kids out of like be Olympic level swimmers. It's kind of yeah. contradictory in my opinion, but you know, they're doing the job, right? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. I mean, I, I kind of feel like um, the one thing that, jumps out maybe you could tell me this i mean you've surfed a lot through the course of your life right you've surfed regularly you're still surfing a lot now and i have this kind of theory that part of what holds this is my theory and so so part of my theory is that what holds some surfers back is the fact that almost to surf really freely you have to be quite uninhibited you have to be quite like you have to be willing to maybe almost think of it as dancing and that you're going to move your body in in ways that feel slightly exaggerated at first because you're trying to achieve a, a particular result. So part of me was that like part of me has this this theory that it's all about relaxation and being uninhibited. And if if you can be uninhibited and if you're willing to make a fool of yourself by really pushing and trying to move your body in a so that someone might come along and say i saw what you were trying to do trying to look like mick fanning or trying to be i almost feel like there might be a phase in surface development where they have to really exaggerate the positioning of their body in order to try and get the board to move in the way they need it to move so part of me thinks maybe surfers are held back a little bit by just being a bit inhibited and and just by british kind of piss taking culture you know what i mean where we don't want to be seen to be trying I think, way, so, I think part of it comes from the fact that, you know, especially for me, I know a lot of my surfing is um, is held back because I live about an hour away um, from North yeah. Coast and, and South Coast. So, you know, I'm in quite a unique position. I don't have to, um, I wouldn't necessarily call Either myself way. a local anywhere, but I like, you know, the places that I go, I only go when the forecast is, is decent. I'm not one of these guys that will go in when it's like three foot onshore slop. Yeah, I'm, I've I've done that. I'm I'm yeah. I'm. Uh, you could call yeah, me a okay. snob if you want, but there you go. Yeah. Um, but one of my things is that sometimes when I go, and I've spoke to a, a few pros about this as well, is that sometimes I don't do things or push as hard because I know that it's going to be a wasted wave. Now, when you're talking about pros and people that that are, yeah. that are doing these things maybe that's in the back of the head as well, where they, well, maybe they think this is like a perfect wave that I'm on. I don't want to like go too hard because if I fuck it up, I've got to go and sit in a lineup with people that are equally as good as I am or better. And, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been at, um, at 
North Devon reefs before and I've I've been you know caught something fucked it up and then I had to sit and wait for another 15 20 minutes for a wave to come through because everybody else in front of me is is waiting in the queue and you kind of like you kind of don't want to waste that so I don't know maybe that's part of it or maybe maybe that's just me I don't know no, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. And, and 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 don't get me wrong, it was interesting when I was filming James, who I mentioned just now, actually, that time, because of just because of the angle and because of where I was shooting from it, for some reason that day it really jumped out at me. I, I remembered how quickly everything happens when you're trying to surf. You know, I remembered my own experiences of trying to pop up and then trying to make sense of and the fact that everything is happening at a thousand miles an hour. And it's very easy as a filmer to be standing there thinking, you know, the wave's doing this, you know, it's predictable. But it really took me back to my own experience of trying to surf and, and the speed with which everything happens really does affect what I think um, people. And I, and I also think, you know, I suppose a lot of the surfing here with the local break is focused on, it can be focused on the, the barrel a lot of the time and it, it can be short punchy rides one maybe two maneuvers at most sometimes so people are very focused on achieving one thing so I, I almost feel like surfers here they don't get me wrong there is access to other waves that let you do it but it's having that opportunity to try and learn how to go top to bottom on waves isn't it whereas if you're a punchy hollow beach break sometimes you're not having the opportunity to to develop that um that skill set but um yeah. But yeah, but I generally speaking, I should just keep my mouth shut, <laughs> or someone should just say, "Let's see you have a go," because uh, just be an exercise in humility. I mean, surfing is a hard sport to learn, as but don't get me wrong, it's joyful, really terrific sport to learn. Great, you know, I, I was swimming at Saunton the other day with the camera, and um, and it, it, there weren't amazing conditions, but. There was just this little window where the waves got really nice. There's this guy on a phone me on like a proper fourth, I'd say a four foot wave. So like you're in the water, it feels like it's six, like looks like a pretty nice wave. He's right at the peak. He's on this foamy, but he's really a he's a capable surfer. You can see that he's just absolutely flying down the line, and he, and it just took me back to, it really was like that experience of God. It is really beautiful to be in the water. Sometimes the sights you actually see in the water are. That you know they are pretty special, so um, so I I suppose it's a good lesson to remember that it's it is really about just uh, the experience of being in the water more more than anything else, you know, rather than who's the best in the world at it. But um, Mate, and, uh, and on that note, I think we've uh, we've been we've been going an hour, so um, yeah, it's flown by. Uh, yeah. Just just a just a little finisher, so um. You know what what gear are you using at the moment, and what are you working on? So I um I shoot stills on a mirrorless Nikon camera. It's a Nikon Z seven, um, amazing stills camera. Not not incredible autofocus, but really really terrific uh, stills camera. Um, but most of the time when I'm filming video, I film on a camera called the Panasonic GH five, and one of the reasons why. I, I chose that camera as it's it's to do with just to be technical. It's to do with the the size of the sensor. So I've got like a six hundred mil lens, but if I put it on a GH five, it 
turns it into a 1200 mil lens. So that allows me to get to, to achieve like really good focus of surface who are often quite a long way away. Um, so it allows me to fill the frame a bit more. And then, I mean, the, the real challenge with the GH5 is more when you wanted to achieve like really, really wide shots. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's quite an old camera now. I think it was like, came out in 2017, but the advantage of that is you can pick them up quite cheap secondhand. And, um, um, yeah, I've been really happy with it. Um, I'm still learning how to use it. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's a great camera. Awesome. Mate, yeah. uh, I appreciate your time talking to me and uh, yeah, some really great insights into the world of, uh, of surf photography, which, um, you know, it can be kind of like one of those things that is quite a hidden art form, you know, if, yeah. to get people into surfing magazines and into surfing edits, you've got the guy that's actually behind the camera. So, you know, thanks for that. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. I really appreciate the invite and uh, apologies if I was a bit all over the place, but it was a pleasure to uh, to talk to you, Ads. Awesome, mate. Thank you. All right. Cheers.